mission in Athens in verses 14 through 21, and then we'll talk about the message in Athens in verses 22 through 34. And so we begin reading about the mission, and it's kind of a, a general description. There in verse 14, remember the context, Paul the apostle is on a second missionary journey. He's uh, uh, planted a church. They've planted a church there in Berea. But, you know, the people were coming against him from Thessalonica. Uh, they were getting violent. They were attacking the house. And so we pick it up in verse 14. It says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And so this is kind of like the mission in Athens. We're going to see it generally. And then the remainder of the chapter is the message in Athens. You know, Paul's life was in danger, so he had to be snuck out of the city of Berea by night. But you know, the uh, Bible says that God works all things together for good, right? And so what ends up happening is they put him in a ship, and I'm sure it was in his heart, it was all part of the plan to eventually start a ministry and share the gospel there in the city of Athens, right? Isn't it cool how, you know, the enemy can do his thing, but man, you know, in one sense, he's the God of this world, but he rules and God overrules. It's so cool. And so now he ends up arriving in Athens. At first he's alone because Silas and Timothy, they stayed behind in Berea. And so, you know, he sends a request for the guys to join him. But as he waits, he sees all these idols in Athens. And as he waits, what ends up happening is he weeps. You know, because he sees the idolatry there. So much so that we read in verse 16, notice again, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to Athens, to idols. You know, Paul here um, comes to Athens at a time when really the city was at a point of decline. It was still kind of recognized as a center of culture and education, Wiersbe said. The glory of its politics and commerce, however, had long since faded. 
It had a famous university and numerous beautiful buildings, but it was not the influential city it had once been. And so here's the thing. Although maybe they weren't as influential, it was still as spiritual as ever. But their spirit was more like the Samaritans and they had that, that passion, that emotional zeal. They were spiritual, but they didn't have the truth. You know, Greek mythology, you guys I'm sure know, it speaks of gods and goddesses that, that, that they really act more like humans than they do gods, right? And when you went to Athens in the day, there were tons of idols to choose from. And, and you know, things haven't changed all that much, to be honest with you. You know, you go down to, to Mexico and you see all the statues. You know, you go down to Cambodia and, man, you walk through the Russian market and they're all there, all those statues, all those idols are there for sale. You know, you go down to Nepal and, you know, I remember pulling over the side of the road and seeing the, the hundred foot statue, the idol, the, they're everywhere. We go into these restaurants nowadays and we see their little idols and they got their food in front of it. I mean, you drive around the city of El Monte and you're seeing it more and more and more. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's a plethora of idols. And, and my, my question is, is as we see these idols, is our spirit provoked within us? You know, a lot of us here, we like to go to Athens. That'd be fun, you know, to do some sightseeing. But God would rather have us do some soul winning. And that was Paul's heart. He saw those idols and to him it, it was nothing to do with culture. It had nothing to do with art. It had everything to do with idolatry. And it provoked him. Right? The, the Greek word translated provoked, it literally means to sharpen. And it's like the idolatry. It stabbed him. It cut him to the heart. He was exasperated and stimulated and there was a spiritual surge of urgency. I mean, he couldn't just wait for, you know, the guys to come and then start ministry. No, it was just, it exploded within him at that moment in time because he was provoked as he was waiting, he was then weeping. And Warren Risby said, like Paul, we must have open eyes. And broken hearts. Because I think if our eyes are open, we're going to have hearts that are broken. And so as a result of that provoking, we see Paul then begins his preaching. And we see that, don't we, there in verse 17? Notice again, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. And, and, you know, there's that word again. We've seen it over and over again through the uh, book of Acts. The word reason is found seven times. It, it means uh, to dialogue, to mingle thought with thought, and to converse and discuss. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. He did it with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers in the synagogue. That was his pattern. He would always do that. But the cool thing is, we see here in Athens, it didn't stay within the walls of this, the synagogue. You know, it goes beyond, if you look there at verse 17, that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and, I love this, 
in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. You know, it was in the marketplace daily, not simply on the Sabbath day, but now we're talking every day. Every day of his life, open, willing, knocking on doors, praying that God would bring someone into his path or he would go to someone who needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, every day there were divine appointments with those who who happened to be there. You know, we sometimes call this cold turkey evangelism, you know, where you just get out. It's it's like I'm not just going to the market to pick up some, you know, tomatoes or something, you know. I'm not going to go to the mall, you know, looking for some shoes. I'm going to go and look for someone that I can share the love of Jesus Christ with. And you go out with that specific purpose and passion, you know, to, you know, eyes to evangelize, the highways and, and byways, the valleys and alleys. I, I'm going to go out because this, this world is flooded with idolatry. That means they're putting things, they're, they're putting themselves before God. They don't, they don't have God in their life. God, the living, loving, saving God is not their God. And so I'm not just going to sit home. I'm going to let it break my heart. There's going to be a surge. There is an urgency for me to go out. And, you know, I heard they got this thing going on at the church, the Jesus evangelism team. I'm going to go with them. I mean, that's what happens, I think, when you really get a a heart, you know, for the lost. You know, I, I pray that you, you would share the Lord with people. I pray that you would invite people to things like the Harvest Crusade or maybe to church, you know, because this is really our call. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to exalt God. We're here to enjoy God. We're supposed to evangelize the lost. And, and my prayer is that we don't miss out on that because it's better than, you know, whitewater rafting. It's, it's better than, uh, you know, the, the nice crazy rides at Magic Mountain or whatever you think is the funnest thing in life. Uh, What brings you joy? You know, I don't know what it is for you. What really brings you joy? There is nothing as joyful as sharing the love of Jesus Christ and seeing them come to the Lord and God can use anyone who's willing to be used. Isaiah chapter 6, he just said, here am I, Lord, send me, right? God had cleansed him, so then God was going to use him. A while back, I, I heard this story uh, of, a, of a gal named Tori Matthews who once worked for the Southern California Humane Society. And, and one day she got a, a phone call, 911, from a child whose pet iguana had died, had, I guess, drowned. Apparently what happened to the iguana is the dog had frightened it up a tree. It climbed out on a limb and then it fell into a swimming pool. And so when Tori Matthews arrived, the little boy was beside the pool crying as his pet lizard lied motionless underneath the surface of the water. And so as she actually jumped into the water, she swam to the iguana. She lifted its lifeless body to the surface of the pool And then a thought came to her mind. She said, 
well, you resuscitate a person, why not an iguana? And so she locked lips with the lizard. And she gave that iguana mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and was able to revive the little boy's pet. Afterwards, she told the reporter that it was a pretty ugly animal to kiss. But she said, the last thing I wanted to do was to tell this little boy that his iguana had died. And, and then, you know, I remember the pastor, he said, and, and, and there are people in our world just as ugly in our eyes as, as, an, as an iguana. iguana. <laughs> you know, their lifestyle, their attitude stands for everything we as Christians oppose. Extending compassion to them would be like doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with an iguana, and you don't want to, you know, that's what, it, what we feel, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. If the last thing Tori Matthews wanted to do was to tell that little boy his pet iguana had died, just think how difficult it will be if we stand before God one day and discover that the people he loved, the people that lived around us, that he brought into our path, drowned and died because we didn't do everything we could to save them. And, and when I read the book of Acts, and I know you might be reading this and thinking, well, this is just information, and this is how the church grew, and, you know, you know Thessalonica, and then Berea, and then Athens, and this information. Yeah, it is part of how Jesus built the church. There is information. There is history. But there's also a stimulation for us to catch the vision, the heart, the heartbeat that Paul had. And that when we look around the world and we see the idolatry, we see how people need God, that our spirits would be provoked within us. And there would be this surge, there would be this urgency to, to share in the synagogue. That's fine, I'll, I'll share there in those you know, church settings. And then, and then to go to the marketplace, you know, if, if need be, every day. You go to work. How awesome would it be if the person who you know, worked next to you in the cubicle beside you got saved? Well, how are they going to get saved unless somebody tells them, you see? And, and maybe you're the one. See, when we read the book of Acts, that's also part of what God wants us to come away with, right? I mean, here's Paul sharing in the synagogue. He's sharing... In the marketplace, that word, it literally referred to an open space in town where you would see a lot of different things. You'd see judicial assemblies. Uh, there you would see the selling and buying of goods. Uh, there you would see the children playing, kind of like parks. You would see parents uh, discussing and talking things. And Paul would just go up to them and strike up a conversation with complete strangers about Jesus. You know, he wasn't a salesman. He was a spokesman offering eternal life for free. You know, he wasn't trying to get rich. He was trying to make others rich, spiritually speaking. And as he did that, as he shared in the synagogue, you know, had those opportunities to teach, and he shared in the marketplace, which to me is a huge thing, I believe that God saw this guy And then God opened more doors for him. You know, more doors for him to then share, we're going to see, in the Areopagus. 
And, and just as a quick side note, you know, I, I, I remember going to South America with, with Pastor Raw. You know, and Pastor Raw, he has a gift of evangelism, but you want to know something? He was always sharing the Lord, not just in the crusade settings, not just in the congregational settings, but in the personal settings. You know, I'd see him go up and he'd see some young people right there sitting down, you know, and he would go up with love and he would just share the Lord with them in different ways. You know, some people, it's kind of funny, they want the pulpit, they want to preach from the pulpit and God's kind of saying, okay, well, maybe, we'll see, well, let me, let me pray about it, let me think about it, but why don't you share out there? I mean, you want to you teach, you want to preach, why don't you just do it out there? I mean, there is nothing so joyful as hitting the streets and sharing the Lord. And as a result of Paul going to the marketplace, these guys, they heard him, or we're going to see in just a minute, that he ends up sharing at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, where he would be te- teaching and talking to all these different philosophers, which, which brings up uh, an interesting question. Some people wonder about philosophy Notice again there in, in verse 18 that there were these Epicureans and these Stoic philosophers, okay? And so we probably should talk a little bit about philosophy. Um, do you guys uh, like philosophy? I don't know. You got to be really careful with that. You know, one of the cool things they, they saw about Paul, notice again in verse 18, it says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said what does this babbler want to say others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them jesus and the resurrection so what we're going to see in our study today as we look at the mission in athens and then the message in athens is that we are ambassadors. You know, let's just say you are an ambassador to the nation of Cambodia. So you're an American ambassador and you go to Cambodia, right? You're going to be faithful to your nation that you're a citizen of, right? Your loyalty lies there. But you go to that foreign nation and you speak their language, right? I mean, you can't be, expect to be an ambassador to Cambodia and not speak Khmer. Well, in one sense, it's the same thing for us. We are ambassadors of God. And so we're loyal to Him, and we know the message of the gospel. And we tell people, because they need to be reminded, and they need to hear it over and over again. Sometimes it's for the first time. God loves you. Your sins have separated you from him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus died on a cross and he rose again. He conquered the coffin, defeated death. And what you need to do, what we need to do is repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. Place your faith in Christ and you'll be saved. And what we do is we, we speak their language, but we speak the gospel we, we find common ground and we build bridges. And that's what God wants us to do. We don't go with a cookie-cutter approach. You know, with the woman in Samaria, Jesus had a certain approach. He had to talk about the living water. And with Nicodemus, he had to tell him, you know, homeboy needed to be born again, you know. 
And God will give you, when you, you're, when you really care enough, you enter into their world and, you know, whatever, they're suffering and, you know, with cancer, or their, their mom or dad just passed away, or, you know, they went through this as a child. You begin to just reach them where they are. And that's what Paul was doing. We're going to see, you know, he's going to be quoting from their poets and he's uh, going to talk about the altar to the unknown God. He's going to reach them in their world. But he is going to share Jesus with them. And that's what we do. There's a message that's clear, that's relatable, but it does not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul did and he uses a little philosophy which is interesting to me i don't know if you guys ever studied philosophy you guys ever studied in school anyone here you know some have defined philosophy as answers that are impossible to understand to questions that are impossible to answer i don't think that's really the 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 definition of it we know it means to love knowledge or love wisdom you know, the Greeks, of course, they love philosophy. They studied guys like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle who called philosophy the science which considers truth. You know, philosophy is an interesting study. The Bible doesn't forbid it, but it does warn against the philosophy of this world. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 8, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so, you know, you go and you read what that guy said, and you might be influenced by them if you don't know the word, and that's why it's important for us to know our Bibles, because then we can test everything else that we read, right? But, but here, there are two uh, schools of thought that are mentioned. You have the Epicureans, and you have the Stoics. And um, the interesting, uh, you know, the way that these guys are just totally different. The Epicureans, in a nutshell, they were the ones who enjoyed the pleasures of life. To them, that's what life was all about. You know, it started really with their pursuit of lessening the pain of life, right? and trying to experience things and learn how to live life with less pain. But eventually, the Epicureans developed a philosophy to today to we would define them as the ones who think that life is all about having fun. It's all about going to the amusement park. It's all about, you know, the, the good food and, you know, that type of thing. To me, it's really found in, I think, in our nation, in our country, right? Where it's all about the pursuit of pleasure. Whereas the Stoics, on the other hand, they were kind of like on the other end. Uh, to them, it was more along the lines of asceticism and religion. And, and in, in one sense, they, they, they denied um, themselves to the extreme, you know, the, the, the Epicureans believed in, in no God. They were atheists. It was all about pleasure, whereas the Stoics believed in pantheism. To them, it was all God. Everything's God. And it was just a suppression of self. And so what we find as Christians 
is the perfect balance. In one sense, if I could define it this way, I would say the Epicureans said it's all about enjoying life. Where the Stoics said it's all about enduring life. Whereas the Christian says it's all about finding life. And that life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and, and Paul here, you know, he's going to go and he's going to share with them exactly that point. You know, it's kind of sad because what ends up happening a lot of times is if you go to school and you get an education, sometimes you uh, learn the wisdom of the world and the Bible says professing to be wise, they became fools. Notice what they said right there in verse 18 again. What does this babbler want to say? They called God's spokesman a babbler. They called the greatest theologian who's ever spoken a babbler. Now, you got to know what the word babbler means. It's not just someone who, who talks a lot. That's the connotation that we have nowadays. Back then, what babbler was in reference to, literally it means a bird that's picking up seeds. Eventually, it began to, to refer to a man who would live on the streets and, and pick up trash. And then to the philosophers, it meant somebody who kind of grabbed a little bit from everybody, put it all together, but didn't really know what he was talking about. That's the way they saw Paul, because their hearts were not open. Sometimes, and there will be those who die in their sins because of this 18-inch gap that they can't get past. You know, because a lot of times we get stuck on things and it just doesn't fit with our intellectualism. How can I go to heaven based on the, the blood of a man who died 2,000 years ago on a cross? Because God said, because he died for us, because God came and paid that punishment, that penalty that we could never pay. Because God is the one who makes the rules. Because God is the one that says, it's by love and not law. It's by faith and not works. But when they listened to him, all they said was, this guy, man, he, he's a babbler. But you want to know what? They were still interested in him. You want to know why? Because he was saying something new, right? And that's what we read right here. Is, oh, what does this babbler want to say? And others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, we know, uh, may we know what this new doctrine is of, of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Here it is. This is their interest. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And there are some people like that. You know, they don't really want to hear like just the Bible. You know, give me a little spice. You know, give me something new. You know, they don't care if it's true. They just want something new. And so they'll go online and they'll search things out. Next thing you know, they're all caught up in this YouTube, you know, conspiracies and things like that. You know, and it's just crazy, you know. No, you know, but, but 
there is one, in one sense, this is new, huh? Because it's a new covenant. It's a new covenant that would replace the old covenant that the book of Jeremiah talked all about, right? You know, it, it, it was new because it's a message that established the new covenant. You know, in this new covenant, we emphasize God's love and not God's law. In, in the new covenant, it's not just a covering of sins. It's an eradication of those sins. In, in the new covenant, it's not the blood of animals. It's the blood of God that washes us and makes us clean. And so, you know, in one sense, it's new. But in one sense, you, you know, you're kind of grieved by people who they don't care if it's true. You know, they just want to hear something new. And so it's kind of funny because you'll share a verse and, and they'll hear it from someone else who takes it totally out of context and doesn't teach it properly, but they like it because <laughs> it was new. Listen, it's better to be rooted in old truths that are true than in new lies that are not. And so, you know, it does open doors Paul then begins to share in the Areopagus. And it's so cool because we learn, you know, this message that was custom made for them. And in the message, we learn a lot about God. And so now we move from the mission in Athens to the message in Athens. And notice what we read in verse 22. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things... You are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And this is an awesome message. You know, um, and in the message, we see that he begins by, you know, you know, that common ground. He builds a bridge. You know, they have this altar to the unknown God. Interesting history in the 6th century B.C. 
it was said that a, a, a poet from Crete, his name was Epimenides, he turned aside a horrible plague from the people of Athens by appealing to a god of whom the people had never heard. And so an altar was built uh, to honor this god, whom the Athenians now called the unknown god. Paul knew this Epimenides. As a matter of fact, he quoted this poet in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. And so, you know, he begins the presentation by appealing to that common ground that they could relate to. Again, eyes to evangelize. God, you love this person. You love these people. How can I reach them? You know, it's interesting because for us as Christians, the way that it works is the unknown God can be known. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 17? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And, and he goes on to say that they may know me. See, a lot of times people think, well, God is far. It's a matter of deism. God kind of started the whole thing. He wound up a clock and then he's gone. But we can't know him. But that's the whole point of Christianity. It's about knowing him and the power of his resurrection. It's about not a religion, but a relationship with God. Just like you can have a relationship with any other person, doesn't it make sense that the one who invented relationships longs for a relationship with you? And so he starts there to this, you know, altar he refers. He said, that's the one that I want to proclaim to you. And then in verse 24 and forward, he starts start talking about the God who, who made the world and, and everything in it. You know, Genesis 1.1, we know God made it. In the beginning, God said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And since he's the maker, he, Paul here just concludes then, then he's also the Lord, right? Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, he, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, that makes him the, the, the Lord and there's no way the God who made everything can live in a temple or in a statue. You know, what he's trying to share with them is, is the truth. I mean, he goes on to talk about the fact that, that God is the one, you know, who gives life and breath to all things, verse 26, and he's made us, he's talking about the creation of man now, from one blood, every, every nation, right? You know, and it's interesting because the Athenians, uh, they uh, prided themselves in their race. They actually thought that their race was better than all the others. So Paul knew exactly what their mindset was, and he was talking to them. He's saying, no, you know, you cut a guy, you know, on his arm. It doesn't matter what color his skin is. They all bleed red. We are all descendants from Adam, right? And I mean, he talks about the, the creating God, but then he talks about the caring God. It's interesting. Notice it says in verse 26, and, and that he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, God is such a caring God that he says, to us, this is when I want you to live and this is where I want you to live. 
Why? Why did God put us here now? Why? It says right there in the next verse, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You know, God made everyone and determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries when and where they would live so that they might seek him and reach out to him and, and realize that he's right there, he's close, he's there, he's near. Understand, he's here for you, right? And, and in one sense, getting saved is kind of like God finding us, but it's also us finding God. And God said, that's why I put you there, you know, now. And who knows? It might, God might even be saying, that's why you're in church today. I put you there because I want to talk to you because I love you. And I'm here for you. And if you want to get saved and if you want to find life, not just enjoying life, not just en- enduring life, but eternal life, if you want that, you can have that right here. I'm here. I'm here to save you. That's what Paul is saying. That's the God that, 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 that's, that we serve. He's, he's a creator God, but he's, he's the caring God. You know, recently I've been listening to this song by Phil Wickham, and he talks a, a little bit about this. And I wish I could sing it to you, but I can't. And even reading it to you, of course, it, it loses the impact. So if you can, you guys look this up, Till I Found You by Phil Wickham. You know, you look it up online or, or you buy the CD or something. But this, what, that's what he's talking about. You know, uh, he talks exactly about that. And, and he, this is the lyrics. This is what he says. He says, I searched through the earth for something that could satisfy, a peace for the hurt I had buried deep inside. Knees on the floor, I finally found everything I needed. You lifted my soul and opened my eyes. And I never knew anything lasts forever till I found you, till I found you. And I never dreamed anything could be better till I found you, till I found you. And then he goes on to say, you're rewriting my story and I'm brand new every morning. Oh, I never knew anything lasts forever till I found you. Till I, till I found you. And it's true. I'll never forget the day that I got saved. When God found me. And I found him. And I reached out. And he came in. That's what Paul is sharing with them. Not in the temples, not in the statues, not in the idols. He's a living God, not a religion, and he establishes a relationship with us. He goes on and he talks about this God who is the creator and who is caring. You know, he he does mention the fact that we're all offspring of God, 
But, you know, it's not in the spiritual sense. It's in the natural sense. And so in that sense we are, because we're all created in His image, but the Bible says in order to be really the offspring of God in the spiritual sense, you need to be born again. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. And so that's why Paul moves from the creator God and then the caring God he then moves to the commanding God. Notice what we read again in verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, God is willing to forgive, but now commands every man, all men, everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world. And so it's just a beautiful sermon in which in one sense he's building bridges and he's finding common ground and he's relating to these philosophers and these Athenians and these you know, guys in, in Greece, but he's not compromising the message. There's a lot of preachers nowadays, they, don't like, they won't use the word repent or judgment, but Paul does because that's the only way we can be saved. Understand, if you die without Christ, you will stand before God in all of your sins and you will face the judgment of Jesus. But God made a way. He said, listen, you don't have to stand in your own righteousness or in your own filthiness. You can stand in the righteousness that I provide by placing your faith in Christ. And what you need to do is repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your sin of unbelief and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Lord said something real interesting in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He said, it's better to go to heaven with one eye than go to hell with two. And so, does that mean that there will be some people in heaven with only one eye? They're going to look like a cyclops or something? <laughs> No, what he's saying is that, you know, you, you, if you need to, you know, whatever you need to do, because I know some people, man, they are in bondage to sexual sin. They're in bondage, you know, to pornography or lies or drugs, and they don't want to let go. I mean, and what God is saying, let go so that you can go to heaven. Because no sexually immoral person or liar or adulterer or drunkard or sorcerer will enter the kingdom of heaven. You mean to tell me you're going to hold on to that sin that will keep you from salvation? No, you have to repent and, and believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Because if not, Paul says, one day you're going to stand before the judge and you're going to give an account. And the reason why the gospel must be preached in such a way is that if, it, if you water it down, you might have some people thinking they're saved and they're not really saved because they're living in sin. And so what does he say? God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
And just in case you're thinking, well, no, nah, not Jesus. I don't know about Jesus. He, he's the only one who's ever risen from the dead. And that's why he's saying, you can take this, you know, to the bank, man. This is true. The commanding God commands us to repent of our unbelief and all of our idolatry and to receive him as the Lord and Savior. Are you willing to repent? You know, and there are some, I don't want to. I like my statues. I like my stuff. I like my life. Well, if you choose to hold on to it, if you choose your statues and stuff, then basically what you're choosing is to stay in your sins. And so after Paul shares this message, typical responses, we read in verse 32, and, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, ah, <laughs> those Christians, right? I'm sure. You know, foolishness, right? Others said, well, I'll do it a different day. You know, maybe tomorrow we'll hear you again on this matter. Let me think about it. Listen, if you're saying I want to do it tomorrow, the truth is you might not have tomorrow. And if you can understand this message, if, it's, if you understand what's being spoken right now, under, please know there's only one way you can understand this message. And that is if God reveals himself to you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And the Bible says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, some mock, some say, oh, I'll do it another day. But then it's so cool. It says in verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so, you know, you look at that and part of you is thinking, man, I wish there were more, you know, but the, the truth is that there's a narrow road, huh, that leads to life and there are a few who find it. And at the end of the day, because some will say, ah, oh, Paul here, he messed up, you know, and so when he went to Corinth, he changed his approach. I don't think so. Anytime you preach to Jesus, repentance, judgment, doesn't matter if you're, you know, relating to them, you know, then you're going to do okay. Paul here, the greatest theologian, his sermon, you know, given to us in the book of Acts. He gives us an example of what to do. And, and, and just when one person gets saved, it's worth it. You know, maybe you're that one person today. Or maybe there's two or three. I don't know. But if it's just for you, understand it's worth it. You know, this, I don't know how to say this name, Dionysius. We'll go with that, okay? It's interesting, this name, literally, in the, it means in the Greek, uh, worshiper of Bacchus. And, and in the Greek culture, Bacchus was a terrible, terrible religion. It was a god in which you would go to this place, and basically what it was known for was you would scream as loud as you could because what they would do in these places is they would just get drunk and there would just be wild orgies and, and, and in one sense I think what the Lord is saying is that someone like that got saved someone so wild so far I, I've learned this about sex and pornography so demonic 
someone like that got saved. And that might be, you know, you here today, and it doesn't matter whether it's a huge thing or, you know, something small that's been coming between you and the Lord. My prayer is that we would know that as we place our faith in Christ, that you can be forgiven, washed, cleansed, set free. But one thing that I've learned over the years is that my God, our God is a perfect gentleman. He'll never force himself upon you. If you can hear the Lord knocking on your heart, calling you to him, I pray like Damaris or Dionysius and these others, that you would make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, to repent and to receive him as Lord and Savior. You know, one last thing, as we have the musicians come forward and we're going to have communion today, you know, every thinking person, they ask, where did I come from? What's the meaning of life? And where am I going? Well, science attempts to answer the first question, but they don't do a good job of it. Philosophy primarily wrestles with the second question, but again, they don't do a good job of it. But only the Christian faith has a satisfactory answer to all three. Where did you come from? You were made by God in His image. What's the purpose of life? To glorify God and enjoy Him. And where am I, where am I going? Well, God offers you a home in heaven. And if you choose to follow Him, then there we will be forever. And so I pray you would make that choice.